guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I am surviving. <laughs> Straight up Destiny's Child style. That's how I feel. Yeah. I'm a survivor. Barely. I feel like the last few episodes, the last few weeks, really, there's been a downward trend in our intro to how we're doing. So we're holding on. It is <laughs> now we're officially in October. Somehow the days just go by. Days go by like a Keith Urban song. Yeah, I did. Looks like we made it, which is another song that's 30 years older than that. <laughs> <laughs> but we are here and we are bringing you a great episode this week. Yes. Yeah. So this is one that we were really excited about. We originally talked about doing this case on Patreon last month, and then it got moved to the main feed. And I'm really excited to bring it to everyone. I think it's a story that some people might be familiar with and some people might not be. You. (laughs) (laughs) You would have been in that crowd, Mandy, let's be honest. (laughs) Yes, I was in that crowd. This week, we are discussing the story of a beloved comedian, actor, friend and father. Phil Hartman was truly one in a million, from his many iconic characters on SNL to his role on news radio to starring in countless movies. This is, of course, Moms and Murder, so today we will be discussing the life and death of Phil Hartman. At the time of Phil Hartman's death, he and his family were living in Encino, California, and so this week, that is where we Googled This City Takes Place. Encino, California is not really a town, but it's more of a neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, and it has around 44,000 residents as of the 2008 census. 44,000 people in one neighborhood? I mean, I feel like this is like a California word for neighborhood. I, But you know what? If you look at my neighborhood, I, I would say 100 people live there, <laughs> but yeah. I bet there's several more. You know, I, I don't... I cannot estimate crowds or distances. (laughs) Numbers are not my thing. I'm not very good at this. And we're always surprised, Mandy. We're always surprised no matter what comes out of this. Yeah. (laughs) So celebrities that currently live in or have called Encino home include Mark Anthony, Dana Carvey, Johnny Cash, Lisa Kudrow, Ron Howard, and Ice Cube. The physicist and astronaut Sally Ride was actually born in Encino, California. An episode of SpongeBob SquarePants titled Atlanta SquarePants features a song called Back in Encino. And I am literally grasping at straws if I had to Google (laughs) and found a reference to it in a SpongeBob episode. So the movie Encino Man tells the story of two friends from Encino, California, who find that a caveman is living in one of their backyards and is frozen in ice. This movie stars Polly Shore and Sean Astin and Brendan Fraser as the caveman. This movie is really peak early 90s. Have you ever seen it by chance? No. I think I watched parts of it. And even like as a kid, I was like, oh, this is a little much for me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're really, really pushing here. So I continue to push as well. Speaking of cavemen, one of Phil Hartman's greatest characters and a personal favorite of mine that we'll talk about a little bit later is Frozen Caveman Lawyer. So ladies and gentlemen of the airwaves, just a reminder... I'm just a podcaster. I fell in a hole with a microphone and ice and later got thawed out by your scientist. Your world frightened and confused me. And this, Mandy, is how I've chosen to end this with a quote from Caveman Lawyer that no one will appreciate but me. Thank you very much. Well, you know, I definitely didn't appreciate it. (laughs) Wait, (laughs) you can appreciate it and not get it. 
I mean, okay, I appreciate your efforts. I definitely oh. did not get it. <laughs> this is like when you get an E in school for effort. That is not yeah. good. Nobody's mom is proud of them on that. So yeah. <laughs> okay, moving on. Philip Edward Hartman was born on September 24th, 1948 in Brantford, Ontario, Canada. He was the fourth of eight kids born to Rupert and Doris Hartman. Rupert was a roofing supply and building supply salesman, and the family lived a middle-class lifestyle with plenty of mouths to feed. In 1958, when Phil was still in grade school, the family packed up and moved to the U.S. by way of Maine and then made their way to Connecticut for a few years. Although Phil became a U.S. citizen in 1990, he said he always felt a special connection to his Canadian roots. The family lived and thrived in Connecticut for a few years before they headed west to sunny Southern California. Phil learned early on as a member of a 10-person family that if he could be funny, he could get attention. According to his sister, Marty Willie, the entire family was actually quite funny, and Phil may not have actually been the funniest one, in her opinion, of course. She said that her father was a quiet man, but he had a dry sense of humor that kept the entire family on their toes. But Phil was different. He had a knack for doing these voices and impressions. The comedian John Lovitz once said that when Phil was in character, he was able to even contort his face without any makeup or special effects, and he could almost even take on the face of the person that he was imitating. So, Melissa, I know that you are a huge SNL fan, and I am assuming that you are a Phil Hartman fan and know about this facial imitation stuff. Absolutely. He honestly could do anything. It's pretty incredible. They have like the best of Phil Hartman. So if you're not familiar with him, you can. Oh, man, I was going to say DVDs, but I think you can probably stream it on YouTube or wherever you stream things. He could play anybody and just so straight face. But you believed that was who he was playing when he played Bill Clinton. You thought he was Bill Clinton. It was uncanny the way he could really turn into these people. Yeah, that's really amazing. That is definitely a natural born talent that you absolutely anyone can just do. Right. So Phil loved his time in California and he was very popular in school and was always able to make new friends due in part to his personality and his love for life. As a kid, his parents would kind of reward him for good grades by letting him just hop on his bike and take his surfboard and drive down to the ocean to get some surfing in. After high school, Phil went to Santa Monica Community College, where he excelled in everything that had to do with the arts, from painting to drawing and even acting. At this time, though, Phil's brother was the manager of a rock group named Rocking Foo. I am not familiar with that. Are you familiar with that band? I am no Foo, but I have never heard of the Rocking Foo. Oh, okay. I thought that a true Phil Hartman fan would have already gone down and discovered that. No one knows who Rocking Foo is. I'm not going to take <laughs> any responsibility for this. Can't wait for the emails that come in about what a disgrace I am. But really, I'm not familiar <laughs> with that one. So Phil's brother was in desperate need of roadies while the band was on tour, and he asked Phil if he would be interested in the job. Phil was still unsure of what he wanted to do with his life at this point. So in 1969, he dropped out of Santa Monica Community College and went on the road with the Rocking Foo. In 1970, Phil met and fell in love with a woman named Gretchen Lewis. The two fell hard and fast and married later that same year. Phil would later withdraw from this relationship, and this seemed to be sort of a common theme in all of his romantic relationships. In 1972, the couple divorced. After the divorce, though, Phil was still looking to figure out a career path that would really work for him. 
That same year, he went back to school at California State University in Northridge and studied graphic design. He excelled in the graphic design program and used his skill to design over 40 album covers for bands like America, Poco, and Steely Dan. And I will tell you, I've heard of all of those bands. (laughs) I've only heard of one. Is it America? No. Steely Dan? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) America did Horse With No Name. Remember on Breaking Bad? That was like a big song that they played. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's America. I mean, this is America, but also that is the (laughs) band America. It was during this time that Phil began to get really a little stir crazy. He was no longer out on the road with these bands living this rock and roll lifestyle, but instead he was sitting at his desk designing logos and album covers for these bands that are living this lifestyle. So he felt like he was kind of getting lost in his work at this point. So one evening, to get a break from the time he was spending at his desk, Phil decided to visit the Groundlings Theater in L.A. If you aren't familiar with the Groundlings, it's an improv and comedy sketch troupe in school that was founded in 1974 in L.A. They have a school you can take courses through, or you can even go see a live show starring their featured players. It's one of those things where if you're chosen to be a part of it, similar to Second City, that you can take classes and kind of graduate your way up and be a part of their live show, that sort of thing. So it's a really big deal to be a part of. Many comedic actors and actresses have gone through the groundlings like Kristen Wiig, Will Forte, Chris Kattan, Anna Gosteyer, Sherry O'Terry, and Jan Hooks. And if you know all those people, please send me an email, put attention Melissa to momsandmurder at gmail.com because we should be friends. (laughs) (laughs) So Phil went to the groundlings one evening as a way to really reset and refresh his mind. During one part of the show, they actually had a few audience members come up on the stage And Phil was absolutely so likable and funny as soon as he got on the stage that they actually asked him afterwards if he would consider joining the Groundlings, which just tells you how funny this guy is. Yeah. As an audience member, they're like, no, actually, we want you to come back. It's just amazing to me that he had that kind of charisma on the stage. While taking classes at the Groundlings, Phil continued to work as a graphic designer. After being there for a while, Phil became a star in the Groundlings world. While at the Groundlings, Phil met and worked with a man by the name of Paul Rubens. Paul had made a name for himself at the Groundlings with his character named Pee-wee Herman. Paul focused a lot of his time on this character of Pee-wee, where Phil often expressed to Paul, you know, hey, maybe you should work on some other characters, but Paul was really focused on just doing Pee-wee, where Phil could do 50 different characters. Paul really spent all of his time on the character of Pee-wee Herman. Which paid off because ultimately Pee-wee became such a big hit that Paul was given the opportunity to create Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Pee-wee Herman is still a thing. My kids watch it. Wait, did I say it wasn't a thing anymore? No, you didn't. But I mean, (laughs) you didn't say that. Yeah, it definitely paid off, I would say, because my kids still watch it. Oh my gosh, I have opinions. Yeah, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Pee-wee's Playhouse, all of that stuff came out of the groundlings, really, with this relationship with Phil and Paul. They worked on this together. So when Paul is given this opportunity to actually write Pee-wee's Big Adventure, he calls in his old friend Phil to take on the task of co-writer. So while both of these actors had written some comedy, most of their work in the comedic field had really been improvisational. So the two knew that they would need help in writing a Hollywood film. So what else would they do? But they bought the book, The Screenwriter's Workbook by Sid Fields. And they actually used this book as their Bible and wrote the movie exactly how Sid actually lays out the process. So 
down to buying these three by five cards in the book, you know, Sid says, buy three by five cards and write, you know, all your ideas on them. And that's what they did. So anything that Sid said, they did. And so Paul later said that the reason the movie is so, you know, this happens and this happens and this happens is because they really followed this formula that was laid out in this book. They just had no idea what they were doing and they followed it by the book. So Phil not only co-wrote this movie, but he also had a role in Pee-wee's Big Adventure opposite of his friend Paul. Phil played Captain Carl, who was a gruff captain who came to visit Pee-wee and show him things about the ocean, but the captain often really grew irritated during his visits. And Phil Hartman really played this role to a T. He was just perfect in it, as he was in like everything he was in. Pee-wee's Big Adventure was a huge hit and as such began to open more and more doors for Phil in the world of entertainment. In 1975, Phil was still at the Groundlings and did something a lot of men in Hollywood did in the 70s, and that was that he appeared on The Dating Game. Phil would actually end up winning a date with the lucky young lady, but she ultimately stood him up for the date. Imagine standing Phil Hartman up for a date. I know. I mean, you might do that because you wouldn't know who he is, but I... I would be there. (laughs) I mean, I know who he is now. True, true, true. (laughs) Well, she didn't know who he was then either. To her credit. Defense? Credit, defense, same thing. (laughs) I'm running out of words here tonight. Go ahead. (laughs) Phil's personal life had been on the back burner while he was rising up through the ranks of the groundlings. But in 1982, he again found himself in love and made the decision to marry his girlfriend, real estate agent Lisa Strain. At this point, his career started to have an uptick and he had worked on a pilot that had not been picked up, but he had also been in several commercials and was even in a Cheech and Chong movie. After a few weeks into the marriage, though, Lisa said that everything changed. He stopped paying attention to her and became a bit of a recluse. So they divorced shortly after their first wedding anniversary. But Phil had not given up the idea of love or marriage. In 1985, Phil met a beautiful model from Thief River Falls, Minnesota at a party. Her name was Vicki Omdahl, but after moving from the Midwest to pursue a career in modeling and acting, she changed her name to Bryn. Bryn was 10 years Phil's junior, but he was immediately smitten with her. Bryn was not new to dating men in Hollywood. She had previously dated the director and actor Rob Reiner. After moving to Hollywood to pursue her career, Bryn became dependent on alcohol and drugs, namely cocaine. At the time she and Phil met, she was sober, but had previous stints in rehab. A year after Phil and Bryn began dating, Phil auditioned at SNL in front of Lauren Michaels. Phil had met Lauren Michaels when Paul Rubens had hosted the show in 1985, and he brought him along as his guest. For someone like Phil, who has this talent for imitation, SNL would be the perfect place for him to create his art. Phil went through the audition process and was chosen as a cast member for the 1986-87 to season. This incredible achievement was not lost on Phil. He believed that being on SNL was like being in the center of the universe. And for someone like him and in that type of vocation, it really would be yeah, like being in the center of the universe. I mean... I don't watch a lot of TV and this me talking on this episode is surely proving that. But I do watch a little Saturday Night Live, probably not like as religiously as you do or as much as you have. But yeah, I love SNL. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And whenever Phil was growing up, keep in mind, you know, SNL hasn't been around forever. 
there was no outlet like this for a kid like him that was growing up and could do all these characters. And now, you know, by the time he comes up in the 80s and stuff, there is this perfect place really called SNL that he can, you know, create and do all these imitations. It's really a perfect fit for him. During his time on SNL, he would play characters like Jim Baker, Ed McMahon, Frozen Caveman Lawyer, who is, I guess, one of Melissa's favorites, according to these notes that she wrote. Yes. (laughs) Your world confuses me. I don't understand because he's a frozen caveman lawyer. He doesn't understand what's going on. It's amazing. (laughs) But one of his other popular characters was, of course, Bill Clinton, as Melissa mentioned earlier in the episode. Phil's professional life began to really take off, and it was during that time that he thought, with the stability he now had, that he would like to give marriage another shot. In 1987, he and Bryn married in a small ceremony, with just a few friends in attendance as witnesses. Since the couple had both been married before, they decided to have an intimate ceremony without really much fanfare. After the marriage, Bryn spent a lot of time at SNL in the writer rooms, where some say that she acted flirtatious with some of the writers, even in front of her husband, Phil. Phil seemed to either not notice or not care, but he often remarked at how happy he was to have such a beautiful wife. Bryn and Phil seemed very happy on the outside, but on the inside, there seemed to be some struggle with the opposing success in their careers. Phil's star was as bright as it could be, and... Bryn, on the other hand, was finding it hard to get any work at all. And we are going to get into a lot more details of this story after one quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. Let's be brutally honest here. How many times have you put on your favorite pair of yoga pants and thought, man, I wish these were acceptable to wear in a professional setting? For me, that occurs daily as I live in yoga pants at home and hate having to trade them out for real pants when I have somewhere important to be. If you're like me, then you'll love knowing that with Beta Brand Dress Pant Yoga Pants, you don't have to sacrifice comfort when it comes to work attire. Beta Brand's Dress Pant Yoga Pants come in dozens of colors, patterns, cuts, and styles, including some with real pockets. And they are super comfy, perfectly stretchy, and stay wrinkle-free. As a short person, one of my main issues when it comes to finding great fitting dress pants is that I can never find the right size that fits my waist, but are also short enough for my mini human legs. I always end up with pants that are uncomfortably tight up top and it's so long that I am tripping over them on the bottom. I was thrilled to learn that beta brand pants come in petite sizes and immediately ordered myself a pair of the classic skinny leg dress pant yoga pants to try out for myself. From the moment I put them on, I felt like I had finally found my soulmate in dress pant form. Not only are they just as comfy and forgiving as regular yoga pants, but they are also stylish and professional and look great with a wide variety of tops. You've got to try a pair of these pants from Beta Brand. Trust me, you'll love them. And you can get 20% off at betabrand.com moms. Don't wait. See for yourself why millions of women agree that these are the most comfortable dress pants ever. Go to betabrand.com moms for 20% off. That's B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D dot com slash moms. If you even know me at all, you know that I am 100% on board for a diet that consists only of tacos. And HelloFresh really had my back in my last meal kit delivery when they sent me everything I needed to make the most delicious pork carnitas tacos with pickled onion and Monterey Jack cheese. Since we eat a ton of tacos in my house, these were the perfect way to shake things up and they were an absolute hit with every member of my family. 
But that's no surprise since HelloFresh has more five-star recipes than any other meal kit. So I know I'll always get something delicious, even if it's not tacos. With HelloFresh, you too can break out of your dinner rut with over 20 chef-curated recipes each week. And if you're not quite as skilled in the kitchen as Bobby Flay, that's okay, because each HelloFresh meal kit comes with step-by-step instructions and pre-measured ingredients, making it easy for anyone to get a delicious meal on the table in about 30 minutes, regardless of their comfort level in the kitchen. Best of all, there is truly something for every household because HelloFresh offers family-friendly recipes, calorie-smart recipes, and even vegetarian recipes. Gone are the days of endless trips to the grocery store and subpar takeout food. HelloFresh makes cooking delicious meals at home a reality. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash MomsAndMurder80 and enter MomsAndMurder80. It's like receiving eight meals for free. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MomsAndMurder80 and enter MomsAndMurder80. And now back to the episode. So when we left off, Bryn and Phil Hartman had just gotten married in front of just a few of their friends just about two years after they had started dating. In 1988, the couple welcomed their first child, a son named Sean Edward Hartman. Phil really reveled in his newfound role of being a doting father. Shortly after the birth of their son, Phil reached out to his ex-wife, Lisa, to let her know that he became a father. He was really excited, and they had a pretty good relationship even after they had divorced. So Lisa decided to send a card congratulating the happy couple on their new baby boy. She just basically said, congratulations, I'm happy for you guys, from Aunt Lisa. What she actually received back was a two-page letter from Bryn telling Lisa to never contact herself or Phil or their family ever again. She even said that if she ever reached out again, she'd be sorry. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Lisa called Phil to tell him about this upsetting letter that she'd received from Bren, and Phil sort of laughed it off and said to Lisa, quote, you should have seen the letter she wanted to send to you, end quote. He went on to say that Bren was a very intense woman, but not much else in the way of an apology or giving really any reason why she would attack Lisa for simply congratulating them. Of course, after receiving the letter, Lisa was shocked, and because of this, it would be many years before Lisa and Phil had any sort of contact. And there's actually this really cringy interview I saw with Howard Stern with both Phil and Bryn. And it was kind of a surprise that Bryn was even on there because Bryn had none of the star power that Phil had. And it seemed almost like she worked her way onto the show. But back in the 90s, 80s, 90s, Howard Stern had a show on E! And it was like the video version of his radio show, I guess. And he had the two of them on and he asked Bryn, you know, hey, have you ever met Phil's first two wives? And she said, yes, I've spoken to the first one, but never to the second, and I don't want to. Of course, this is referring to Lisa, the person who she had sent this terribly mean letter to, threatening letter, really. During Phil's time at SNL, the couple split their time between an apartment in New York and a 4,000-square-foot home in Encino, California, that Phil had nicknamed the Ponderosa. It was a beautiful home in an upper-class neighborhood in a picturesque area filled with trees that sat just blocks away from Ventura Boulevard. Phil really loved his home, but he always took his success in stride. He had been in corporate America until he was nearly 40 years old, so he knew how to work hard and how lucky he really was to have created a successful career in the entertainment world at his age. Which, it's not that old, like the closer I get to that age, it's not that old, but Starting this kind of a career in entertainment, you know, you see like 
the Britney Spears who started as a teenager. So for Phil, he was almost 40 whenever he went on SNL, which is a lot different. A lot of the players on SNL now are in their 20s, maybe early 30s, but not late 30s for sure. In 1989, Phil won an Emmy as part of the writing staff on SNL. In the coming years, as Melissa said, SNL began to employ younger and more silly or like physical comics like Chris Farley, Adam Sandler and David Spade. Phil never looked at himself as being particularly silly, and a lot of his roles were more of the straight laced guy. But throughout his career at SNL, he was known as the glue that held the cast together. In 1992, Phil and Bryn welcomed their second child, a daughter named Virgin Annika Hartman. Phil often said that Virgin was the most beautiful baby in the world, and he really relished his role as a father. He often spoke about how much joy he found from being a father to his two children. While he was on top of the world with his professional life, his personal life was really crumbling. According to a friend of Phil's, he would often fake going to sleep at night just to avoid an inevitable fight with Bryn. While he looked like he had it all, friends that were close to him knew that there was trouble brewing just below the surface. Phil's star continued to rise on SNL, and when Bill Clinton was running for president of the United States, Phil was the natural pick to play him on the show. His role as Bill Clinton on SNL would end up being his most popular character of all time. It was so popular at the time that he was even interviewed on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno as Bill Clinton. Around this time, he was hired by The Simpsons to provide the voices of characters such as actor Troy McClure and lawyer Lionel Hutz. In total, Phil is credited on 49 episodes of The Simpsons. His career continued at an upward trajectory, which kept him very busy as the breadwinner of the family. While Bryn wanted to be an actress, she had very little success in this field. In the 90s, Phil was really everywhere. He appeared in commercials for Cheetos, McDonald's, and had parts in several movies. He made more than a million dollars for his McDonald's commercials, which even Phil thought was just absolutely crazy. It is crazy. That's so much. And he was doing yeah. so many of these things. He was in such demand. Put me in a McDonald's commercial. <laughs> I can eat a Big Mac on camera. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. <laughs> Phil was making more and more money and began buying more and more toys. He had boats and planes and started to spend less and less time at home. Bryn was the homemaker and primary caretaker of the children, and she kind of started to feel like her husband should have been at home a little bit more than he was. In 1994, Phil made the decision to leave SNL. In the closing sketch of the final episode of the season, both Phil and Chris Farley appeared in a song together. Just four years later, both of these comedians would be dead. And I'm going to say here real quick, we are going to put a link to that video in the show notes because it makes me cry so much, but it's really just this piece of history. We'll never have back these two actors and it breaks my heart. And so I'm just here to say that. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and we are going to get into the rest of the story after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it into your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. 
BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you find you ever want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it is truly an affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms. These days, it seems like I just live at the airport and my suitcase just stays packed. The last six weeks have been full of travel and the month of October has even more jet setting in store for me, which is why I am happier than ever that I now own the Bigger Carry-On by Away Luggage. The Bigger Carry-On is roomy enough to fit all the things I need while traveling, but still perfectly sized to fit in the overhead bin and lightweight enough that I won't drop it on my head while I'm trying to hoist it up there. But my most favorite thing about my Away Bag is that it comes with an objectable battery, perfect for recharging my phone after listening to hours of podcasts while I'm airborne. Away luggage truly makes traveling a breeze with its lightweight, durable shell and 360-degree spinner wheels, which guarantee a smooth ride. These suitcases are designed to last a lifetime, and Away stands by that promise by offering to fix or replace your luggage should any part of it break. Away is so sure that you'll love your luggage that they even offer a 100-day trial where you can take it for a spin or two, and if you decide it's not the right luggage for you, you can return it for a full refund, no questions asked. You'll get free shipping within the contiguous U.S., Europe, and Australia, but you can also visit a brick-and-mortar store in New York, Austin, L.A., San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, and London. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com moms and use promo code moms during checkout. That's awaytravel.com moms and promo code moms for $20 off an away suitcase. And now back to the episode. After Phil left Saturday Night Live, he began working to develop his own sketch show on NBC. At this point, his wife, Bryn, is really desperate for acting work, and she's begun really pushing Phil to have her on his new show. At the same time he's making this sketch show for NBC, he was also developing a sitcom that he had mentioned really to other writers and people involved in this project that he wanted to have his wife appear in. Ultimately, though, neither of these shows would pan out. But shortly thereafter, Phil made the decision to work for a show that was already in production. And this is when he got involved in News Radio, where he played the role of Bill McNeil. News Radio was a comedy that debuted in 1995 that Phil appeared in and played opposite of Dave Foley, Andy Dick, John Lovitz, and Vicki Lewis, just to name a few. Bryn was apparently furious over this decision, and she felt that Phil had come to this decision to take this job instead of working on the sketch show or the other pilot that he was working on because he did not want to work with his wife. So he would rather get involved in something where he has to say, "Mm, sorry, can't help you out here. I can't give you a job. This isn't really my gig, you know? So she was apparently super upset with his decision to actually join news radio. While Phil continued to work and stay busy, Bryn ended up falling back into her addiction. Phil again told his wife that he could not take being married to someone who was unable to control their drug or alcohol intake, and he convinced Bryn to go to rehab. This would be very short-lived. 
A few months later, the Hartmans threw a Christmas party and Andy Dick, who was Phil's co-star on news radio, was in attendance. For those that don't know, Andy Dick really has a very well-documented addiction to drugs and alcohol, and he even spent a season on Dr. Drew's now-defunct VH1 reality show, Sober House, which was a follow-up to the show Celebrity Rehab. I watch a ton of reality TV shows, and these should have never been shows. These are people in the middle of addictions. It was hard to watch, and you felt like they were kind of in it for the fame a little bit, which made it more sad. And it was just really rough. Like I stand behind a lot of terrible shows. I really don't think that should have ever been on the air. And several of them have died, not because they were on the show, but lots of the people that were on there have actually passed away. At this party though, Bryn and her friends asked Andy if he had any cocaine on him. He told them that he did and he gave some to her and her friends. According to Bryn's brother, though, Bryn took a little more than normal that night, and she was actually frightened by her reaction from it. Phil found out about her cocaine use at the party, and he again said, I can't be married to somebody who can't control their drugs and alcohol, and Bryn made the decision then and there to go to rehab. But Bryn again left before completing the program. She told friends and family that really she just missed her kids too much to stay through the entire program. While Phil was a huge personality, he really valued his alone time. He loved to be outdoors on his boat or on his plane, and the more problems that he had at home, the more he started gravitating to his toys and these other activities. Because Bryn struggled with the success that Phil was having, the more successful he became, the more he withdrew from her and the harder things got for the two of them. Bryn had actually battled depression and issues with self-esteem for several years. At one point, she had been prescribed Zoloft by her son's doctor. At this time, she was mixing alcohol, cocaine, and Zoloft, which was a cocktail that appeared to make her even more intense, and the blow-ups between she and Phil got even more contentious. Phil had told friends that during this time, their fights actually started becoming physical, and he said that he would have to physically restrain her from all of the slapping and the punching that she would do. Because Phil was away for work a lot, Bryn decided that she would feel safer having guns in the home for protection. And this is something that friends of theirs really were concerned about, but Phil didn't seem concerned. On May 27, 1998, Phil was in Newport Beach with a friend. When he got home, he sent the nanny home, but Bryn had actually already gone out that night herself. She went out for dinner and drinks at Buca de Beppo with her friend, who had been a writer on SNL in the years that Phil was on the show. The restaurant was located less than a mile from the Hartman home. According to the bar manager, Bryn had two Cosmopolitans to drink, and she just spent the evening talking to her friend about her relationship with Phil. She expressed that Phil really just wanted her to take care of the kids, but that he wasn't interested in what she really wanted to do which was to continue her career in acting. At this point, Bryn had only had a few bits and parts in shows like Third Rock from the Sun, but she really hadn't seen anywhere near the success that Phil had seen. A little while later, Bryn's friend left and Bryn stayed at the bar at the restaurant for a little while, and she eventually did leave and went to her friend Ron Douglas's home, which was also nearby. She had a few beers to drink while she was there, and according to Ron, she acted as if she didn't really want to go back home, and she really proceeded to complain about her husband to Ron, who also happened to be a former boyfriend of hers. 
Around 12.45 a.m., Bryn headed back home for the night. And when she got there, the kids were in bed. And according to the police, they believe that when Bryn arrived home that night, a fight broke out between her and Phil. They allege that things became really heated and the argument ended with Bryn grabbing a Smith & Wesson and shooting Phil three times while he laid in their bed. Bryn then left the home, leaving her children behind after she has shot their father and headed back to her friend Ron's home. When she got there, she went inside and told Ron that she had killed Phil and didn't know why. At this point, you know, she is intoxicated and Ron is like, this didn't happen, says he doesn't really believe her. He's seeing that she's acting erratically and she's, you know, seems confused. And she started rummaging through her purse and this gun falls out. So at this point, it's 545 in the morning and Ron just takes the gun and places it in the trunk of his car. And he and Bryn then get into their respective vehicles and drive back to the Hartman home in Encino. Ron then arrives to the Hartman home with Bryn. He goes inside and Bryn walks him into the master bedroom, which is where he sees that Phil Hartman is indeed dead. He immediately picks up the phone and calls the police to tell them that there has been a shooting. Bryn goes back into the bedroom and makes a call of her own. At this point, she closes the door. Ron goes to open the door of the master bedroom and finds that it's been locked. And Bryn is inside, hysterically crying and screaming, and she continues to call several people on the phone. When the police arrive, Ron grabs Phil and Bryn's son, Sean, and hands him off to the LAPD. He also gives the officers the gun that Bryn had dropped in his home. Ron tells the LAPD that the couple had a daughter and that she was still somewhere in the house. The police enter the home and find her in the back of the house, hiding under blankets and terrified. This has been ongoing for hours. The police believe that one of the kids, they believe that Sean actually heard some of this fight going on because after they spoke to him, he said at one point he heard doors slamming and then he heard somebody yell, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So this is several hours, more than likely, of terror for these children. So one of the calls that Bryn makes while she's in the master bedroom is to her sister. On this call, she tells her sister to make sure her kids know that she loves them. As the police are getting the children out of the home, they hear a gunshot. Bryn had turned the gun on herself. One of the most heartbreaking things in the days after this murder-suicide is that there really was no clear motive as to what led Bryn to shoot Phil that night. Really, it's just all speculation. Things weren't perfect in their marriage at this time, but really, they had never been. Police awaited the toxicology reports from the night for more information. John Lovitz, who was Phil's friend and co-star on news radio and actually came up through the groundlings with him as well, was incredibly upset over the murder of his friend. But he channeled his grief into anger towards another co-star, Andy Dick. According to Andy Dick, John once approached him after Phil's death and whispered in his ear, you killed Phil Hartman. John believed that by Andy Dick giving Bryn cocaine at that Christmas party six months earlier, that caused Bryn to relapse, which led to Phil's murder. Andy Dick has said a lot of times, you know, she was already wanting to relapse. She was already at that point. If she's asking for cocaine, I didn't do anything. She was already there. If she didn't get it from me, she would have gotten it from somebody else, basically. So on June 8th, 1998, the toxicology report was released. Bryn had a blood alcohol level of 0.12. She also had cocaine in her system as well as Zoloft. With this information, Bryn's brother filed a lawsuit against the makers of Zoloft, claiming that she was suffering from ill effects from the antidepressants. 
Pfizer, the parent company of Zoloft, later settled the case for $100,000, but in doing so, they claimed no wrongdoing. Prior to their death, the Hartmans had set up their estate and left the entirety of it to their children, which is estimated at the time to be $1.23 million. The estate was designed so that the children would get one-third of their inheritance when they reached the age of 25 or when they had received a bachelor's degree from college. When they turned 30, they would receive another third of their inheritance and the remainder when they turned 35 years old. Kathy Bryn's sister raised the children in the Midwest. Bergen is now married and owns and operates a business with her husband. Sean is currently pursuing a career in art and music. Phil actually posthumously received his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame with members of Saturday Night Live and those who had worked and loved Phil accepting the honor on his behalf. Mandy, this story makes me so sad. It is really sad. It, it is, is terribly sad. It is. I don't feel like I have an emotional connection to this because, like I said, I know I say it all the time and I feel terrible that I don't watch television as much as you do. Okay, wait a minute. So, that is the judgiest <laughs> sentence that's ever come out of a human's life, ever. <laughs> you know, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying I don't watch TV, so I don't feel like, you know, I didn't develop this like connection with Phil Hartman. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's still a sad story. I think it's terribly sad, and especially for these kids who lost both of their parents. And, you know, it's awful. It's really, really sad. But it was terrible because during that year, Chris Farley died of a drug overdose. Phil Hartman died in this horrific way. And they were just two huge stars that you could only see doing more and more. I can't remember who it was exactly, but they said they always felt like Phil would become basically the next Tom Hanks. He had a really wide range of things that he could do. and. Really, the sky was the limit with him. He really could do anything. And he was so likable, according to like literally everyone that worked with him. And you know, like people do say nice things when people have died, but they were all saying he loved to work. He loved to be the first one there, the last one to leave. His only problem was whenever he couldn't get home in time to see his kids. He always wanted to get home. And so whenever days went long, he was like, I really need to get home. I was going to bring my kids to the zoo or whatever. So he just seemed to be a really likable guy. And worked really hard and has such a cool, eclectic past, like getting into the groundlings the way he did, designing America's like album cover. Like, you know, it's just so crazy and so random and it all kind of works together for Phil. So that is this week's episode. Thank you so much. Thank you to Chad, who is with the Perfect Package podcast that suggested this one for us. And this was such a cool one for me to really dive deep into. I knew a lot about it, but I didn't know nearly as much as information that was out there, really. Yeah, awesome. So we are going to move on to last thing before we go, and we're just going to answer a question today that was submitted by Karen Kay from our Facebook group. And she wants to know if we ever get recognized by listeners when we're out in public. I am going to let you start answering that. I'm going to let you go first. So it has never happened. I am always terrified that it's going to at some point. I think about it a lot of times when I'm in airports and stuff. Like I've been traveling in and out of Atlanta airport a lot. And there's so many people there all the time. So I'm always like, someone's going to recognize my face in here. But no one has. And so I'm actually not really that upset about it because I feel like I would be the most awkward person if a stranger came walking up to me and said they recognize me. But I have had situations. I carry my little avocado backpack with me everywhere and I have pins on it. And one of the pins I have on there is one of our pins. That's a mom's murder pin. And I've had multiple people comment on it. And so they'll just be like, 
oh, what is that? Like moms and murder. And I just kind of gloss over the fact that like it's my podcast or our podcast. I'm just like, oh, yeah, it's a podcast. It's a true crime podcast. And I'll kind of like explain what it is a little bit. But I never say like, yeah, I am like one of the hosts on the show because I just don't want to draw that kind of attention to myself. But that's really the closest I've ever gotten is people commenting on either that I have a magnet on the back of my car or I have a sweatshirt, too. I am not ashamed to flaunt our merch and I do it. I have stickers and stuff, but I will never tell anyone that it's like our show. I tell them about the show, you know, and then let them decide. But no, no one's ever recognized me. Honestly, if you ever see me out in public and you want to say hi, I'm very nice. I'll be nice to you, but I will be surprised for sure. (laughs) I like that. So I take a little bit of the opposite approach and I have nothing on me that you would see that Moms and Murder is even a thing I know about. I used you to wear the sweatshirt. You have a sweatshirt. Out in public. I don't wear it out in public. I oh. only wear it at my house. So I wore it to Kim's running thing and that's the only time I've worn it out. Like it just makes me self-conscious for whatever reason. So I did have a magnet on the back of my van and I stopped doing that because my daughter's a little older and I did run into a problem. And you remember this, Mandy, where someone I was trying to have like a mother's helper in my house. And when the lady asked what it was for, I was like, oh, I have a podcast. It's true crime. She wrote me back and was like, I don't feel comfortable with my daughter being in your home. So that kind of ruined things for me. And so from then I was like, I don't want this to be a reflection on my daughter, even though it's fine once people know what it is. But to be like, oh, I co-host this. It's not like you listen to it. You're part of the problem then. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I don't know why I went off on that tangent, but nobody's ever recognized me. Nobody ever will recognize me. I would be totally weirded out. It would be bizarre. It's really neat whenever people like my mom called me one day and was like, hey, I have your magnet on my van. And somebody at work like came up to me and talked to me and they wanted to check out the show and blah, blah, blah. And then later in our Facebook group, she basically wrote a lady named Michelle. She wrote. Hey, I met one of your moms and I'm not sure whose it is, but I saw her bumper sticker and asked her what it was. And she told me, so my mom's doing more for us than I've ever done, but all of it's very weird. And this is the nice thing about it being like voices. So nobody sees our faces so much that they would really put it together. You know, yeah, it would be different if you follow us on social media, you've seen us, but not regularly. Well, I think Only I think we've worked out that only like 10% of our listeners actually follow us anywhere on social media. So that's not really that many. It's a lot. So yeah, it's a whole lot. We don't need to tell you the number. It's a ton. There's so many of you guys. It's crazy. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. No, we're thankful for everyone that listens. And 10% is still a lot of people. But yeah, exactly. There's only 10% of people that really know what we look like. Don't look us up. You don't need to know. This is not I'm not encouraging this whatsoever. No. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. So before we go, we are going to play the promo for our friend Lisa from the Texla podcast. And this is a podcast that does crimes out of Texas and Louisiana. Does that make sense? Texas, Louisiana, Texla. Perfect. Yeah, Yeah. she's great. She's so funny. And I think you'll really enjoy her show. So you guys can check that out. Otherwise, we had our Patreon episode this month. Well, we got it up in September. Mandy, it was one of my favorite ones we've ever done. Me too. I loved it so much. We talked about Melissa actually let me talk about a few conspiracy theories and it was such a fun and relaxed episode. If you are a fan of the Mandy and Melissa style, like ridiculous giggling and laughing, then you will probably will love it because we just laughed through the whole thing. It was so great and so fun and so funny. And well, we think it was it turned out (laughs) awesome. (laughs) 
don't know what the people think. I mean, I enjoyed it yeah. and thought it was one of the best things that I feel like we've ever done. So yeah. if you want to check that out, you can go to patreon.com slash moms and murder podcast and it will be there for you. And otherwise, we'll be back here next week. Same time, same place. All of that jazz. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, y'all. It's Lisa from Texla True Crime. I've got a brand new podcast that covers homicides, missing people, and well, anything that I want to talk about in Texas and Louisiana. I do tell some jokes and I do try to keep it kind of light, but at the end of the day, we're trying to give voices back to the people who no longer have them and to bring stories that have kind of fallen out of the limelight back into it. I hope you'll join me. You can find me on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Bye, y'all. I hope you're hearing from me soon. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.